0: Greetings, 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 everyone, and welcome to another edition of Cat's Corner the Podcast. I'm your host, Pussycat, Cat Cat Day. I am currently sitting in a hotel in D.C. as I record this, and I decided that I was going to try to be more consistent with my recording, uh, which means that I'm just going to record wherever I record, as opposed to trying to set up time at Perry Studios, although I love how crisp it sounds. Today is kind of like a palate cleanser. Uh, There's some other stuff coming down the pike, but I've been having a lot of thoughts. And so consider this a, a general brain dump where I'm thinking about how we show up authentically and how we show up in a way that sustains us. And I'm thinking about this across all aspects of my life, not just my creative life, but also my personal life. I have been recently working in a variety of capacities with different clients doing different things. And, you know, it ranges from creative direction to, you know, personal intuitive counseling to, you know, connecting, just, you know, having clients stay connected with the people that are going to help them do what they need to do. And what's interesting for me and what I'm actually sort of fascinated by right now is how much the work that I do sustains me, but also how much I learn about myself in the process. I am at a point in my life where I'm really clear about who I am and what it is that I'm trying to do. There's been a lot of conversation um, as I rebuild yet another team to kind of help me fulfill my vision about how I'm going to show up in sort of the front-facing way. And a couple of things have come to me in the last... Three weeks, And I was like, you know what, let me just get this down so that it's down. So the first thing that, that I have sort of been mulling over is how, as a creative, when you are on the back end of things, when your creativity is production oriented, how it's very easy for people to forget you or miss you, whether it's intentionally or not. I'm not a DJ. I'm not an actor. I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a typically front facing person, although I have a very front facing personality. My skill set, my creativity is in taking ideas and making them into into real life I you know, curating things of that nature. And I was just thinking about how when you are a curator, when you are someone who is always pulling people into the front, pulling people together if there isn't a concerted effort by the people that you are working with or the institutions or you know the corporations, if there isn't someone outside of you saying, hey, she or he did that or they did that, there's a chance that people will not know who you are and will not understand the significance of your contribution. And I have been kind of mulling over in my head how do you when your gifts and your and your passion really kind of move around helping people like thrive and be better how do you then get acknowledged for the work that you do because ultimately while I do believe a lot of what I do is part of my soul contract and why I agreed to come back in this form I do I do like getting credit for what I do um I do like being acknowledged for the work that I've done because I think for me, that's, that's a natural inclination and that should be part of it. I'm not Batman, you know what I'm saying? And so I was wondering, and this is for everyone out there, you know, how much acknowledgement plays into how you operate in the world. Like, it's interesting. I am an eldest daughter. I'm an eldest child. So, you know, eldest daughter syndrome is a very real thing. It's recently been given a name, but Anybody who's an eldest daughter, regardless of how old you are, we all have common behavior types. And one of the behavior types is that you defer attention from yourself. Like you, You find a way to do what you do, get it done, but you often are not necessarily on some see me type of time. But the thing is this, with the type of work that I do, if there isn't a way for me to sort of brag about what I'm doing in a way that's like, yo, I did this. The types of things that are expansive and that will allow me to do things on a bigger scale will get lost because people won't know that I did it. It's this weird space to be in where I want to do bigger things. I want to have bigger opportunities to kind of show off what my creative vision is. There's a client that I'm working with now that I'm very excited about that I'll announce once the contracts are signed, but Uh, that I think will give me an opportunity to really flex muscles that I've been, you know, training, but haven't been able to use. And so that's very exciting. And, you know, I can't wait to be like, yeah, you know, I'm working with this particular person because they're amazing in terms of their art, in terms of who they are and what they're trying to do. And it is pulling me back into a very familiar space in terms of how I work with artists, but it's pulling me also in a very different direction. And so I'm excited about the exploration and the experimentation that I get to do around, you know, what it means to be a creative director. And at the same time, if I want more opportunities to do that, I have to figure out this balance between, you know, the fact that when I do things, I am doing them because it feels good to do them. And I don't have a personal sort of like when I get that thank you, I'm like, I'm good. But the thank you isn't enough if I really want to grow what I'm doing. It's this weird place that I'm in. And I I had my students watch there's this series called Abstract of Design on Netflix. And I had them watch season two features Ruth Carter, who is the famed costume designer who has worked with everyone from, you know, Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X to, you know, Black Panther, which is what she's become really known for. But I didn't realize she'd also done Amistad and there was one more that she'd done that I was like, oh, I didn't know that she did that. And the way that the series is done is beautifully because she gets to tell her story in her own voice. And not only do they have her share her story, but they film her in a way that lets her be part of her story. So it's not just her sitting there telling you these things. It's like a mini doc. And I have to tell you, I was completely moved by Ruth Carter's story because You see this woman who initially starts out wanting to be an actor, wanting, you know, in theater. And because she didn't get a position and she was sort of asked to, you know, help with the costume design as a way to still be part of the production, she found her passion. She's brilliant, you know. But when you look at all of her work, I could totally relate to the aspect of her personality where She's just doing what she loves and she's not necessarily keeping track. She's just out here doing it. Uh, there was a moment before Black Panther blew up and became the global phenomenon that it is where in the making of and the storytelling that went behind what was probably the blackest Black History Month in recent you know, living memory, uh, where she talked about initially going to turn down the role of costume designer because this was going to be the first time that she was going to have to build an entire world. Everything that she had done, she had context because she was dealing in you know historical fiction or pop culture. So there were reference points. When you do do the right thing, you know what's popping. You know what 1990s Brooklyn is looking like because you you have reference. When you do an Amistad because there are actually people, which is fascinating, who study clothing as historical artifact. And so they can look at a button and tell you. What year it would have come from, you know, in addition to what it was made of, who might have used that button and why? It's just fascinating. And so she's always had roles, you know, she's always had projects where because she's dealing in sort of historical context, she has, the blueprinting is a bit different and it's a little bit easier, you know, go to the museum's archives, you go to historical archives, you talk to different people and you, you know, you start to cultivate what your costumes are going to look like. You read historical records, you get first-person accounts. You know, she talked about Amistad and her decision to put some of the enslaved people who were in that court scene in the clothing that she did because of a note from that time that said that these people looked like doves. They were all in white or something. So she's able to take these cues and interpret them in a way that ultimately gets you to The finished product. And, you know, in addition to her telling her story, you had people like, you know, Samuel Jackson, you know, Ryan Coogler. There was this one artist that I wasn't familiar with all talking about, you know, the beauty of Ruth Carter. And really the fact that when she creates, you know, the costume movie, she did Dolomite. That was the other one she did. that what she's doing is giving you the final piece for your character. You know, the clothes really help sell the vision. So as I'm watching this, you know, I'm completely enamored by her storytelling. She did Baby Boy, I didn't know that, John Singleton. And she talked about that in relation to her husband, who was murdered, who I I didn't know this, and who was, I believe, a Crip, a lifelong Crip, and he was murdered in a bar. And she talked about how he informed everything that in that movie uh, what's the guy? The I can't remember the, the actor's name. The guy who played Baby Boy, how his whole outfit, you know, they did a side by side where she talked about the creases in his pants, the type of shoe, the fabric that, you know, the top was made out of and how all of that came from her husband giving her insight into how at that time, you know, what the dress code was and, and you know, what were the appropriate brands to associate with that look. And when you look at someone like a Ruth Carter, she's a cultural architect, in my opinion. You know, her medium is wardrobe and costuming, but she really is a cultural architect. That's what she's doing. She is building, you know, culture and sort of honing in on culture through clothing. You know, when she works with Black filmmakers to talk about Black concepts and to highlight things like Malcolm X, she's dealing in that very deep black space. And so I see her and her work as cultural architecture. And whenever I hear or read stories about people that I identify as cultural architects, there's always a moment where like, I feel it in my heart, like those are my people. I met her once and I would have killed to have an hour with her one-on-one just to talk. I think that we would be like good friends because she was moving through her life the way one moves through one's life. And once she had found her passion, you know, she's built an entire life out of it. But there was a moment where she did a, um, they did a retrospective where they brought all of her work in. It was a museum exhibition and she's walking around and I'm actually getting emotional. just thinking think about that scene. She's walking around the museum and she's looking at everything that she's done. Like Black Panther is the thing that pushes her out in front into the world The people who know her, who understand her brilliance, who know that she's always clutch, they know her. But when Black Panther came out, it solidified everything that she had done in like one fell swoop. Because if you think about what you have to do to create an entire world based on a fictionalized African country that has been kind of created from a white sort of imagination and now you want to make that into like a real thing and you have to think of placement like Black Panther in itself is a really great study of cultural architecture because to build a world that would have kept itself closed off as all of these atrocities are happening requires a certain amount of courage you know and there was a point where she was not going to do it she talks about this in a clip that I found where she was scared, she was terrified, you know she was like, "I don't know if I could do this, and she said, "I think she said she was really scared. She went to sleep, she woke up the next day, she was still scared, but something was like, You gotta do this, so she did it, and I think that that's something I want for everyone who you know has a passion and is pursuing it actively. I want for all of us to have a point where we're offered something that scares the shit out of us, and we do it anyway because The biggest failure is not even trying. And so when she's looking at everything and and she's walking the retrospective, you can tell she's overwhelmed. She's got tears in her eyes because she's like, wow, it's kind of that moment where you sit back and you look and you're like, God dang it, I'm a beast. I'm just out here killing it. You know, and I want that for her and I want that for me. And I was like, oh, you know, how do I figure out like what's my what's my Black Panther moment? You know, what does that look like? And I do think to a certain extent with what I'm about to embark on with this one client that that might be my version of that in terms of the thing that kind of helps to project me forward, because I would love to do, like I said, bigger things, you know, things that have budgets and production value that I can actually control and say, hey, this is how I need things. And a way to just continue to highlight Black people and Black culture in a way that I think is compassionate and, and real and really kind of speaks to sort of that global space. So yeah, that's one of the big thoughts that I've been having, just wandering around, you know, navigating that space between being able to live in a world where I can do and be who I am, at the same time realizing that, there is a lot of opportunity out there that I may not be getting because nobody knows who I am. <laughs> so, um, and I shouldn't say nobody, but a lot of people don't know who I am. Uh, so yeah, as I'm thinking through the next steps and what this new trajectory looks like, and as this team gets built and, you know, people are saying, you know, we love what you, you know, talk more about what you're doing, da, 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 be, You know, we need you to be up front, be out front. I am working through what, that looks like for me. And having to accept that it's it's possible that as much as I say I want to be as much as I say I want bigger opportunities, I may not be willing to upset the balance of the peace that I have in my life that being out front might take on. Because I've had to fight for that peace. So yeah, that's kind of where I am with it. I'm still thinking things through. I thought I was gonna have a whole bunch of other stuff to say. But I feel like that's a good place to end this particular episode because that sits really heavy. Like that's the energy that I'm walking with right now. Like as I'm sitting in this hotel room and kind of thinking through the rest of my day and all the things that I have to do, I am immensely proud of the way that I've been able to show up in the world because Lord knows I didn't plan it this way. But I also wonder if, you know, if there's, I'm rereading this book. You see, I just pivoted. I was going to close the door and I was like, no, you know how black people do, you know. So we're technically, I'm walking you out the door, but I'm actually at the car and your door is not open yet. So we're still talking. (laughs) I'm rereading Paolo Coelho's Aleph because I'm obsessed to a certain extent with Paolo Coelho. I feel like uh, there was a point in time in my life where I read a lot of his books, like all back to back and they've stayed with me. You know, the witch of Portobello is one of my favorite books by him. Like The Alchemist is the book that I read that made me walk away from my international association job and go be out here doing what I do. But The Witcher Portobello really opened me up to to the metaphysics of how you can connect and disconnect from your human space into a more expansive universal space. I reread that book you know, every couple of years because... There's just things in it that I need to be reminded of. But the Aleph was sitting in my one of my rooms in my house and I picked it back up and I was like, okay, I need to reread this. So I've been carrying this book around for like a month and a half, slowly rereading it. And there's a moment in the book where Paloquelo Coelho is, he's on a trans-Siberian trip because he has kind of lost the spark and his spiritual mentor tells him that it's time for him to travel again. And so he decides he decides to turn this sort of limited run book tour into this massive tour where he's now on this Trans-Siberian train ride all the way to, through Russia, which is like a two or three week situation. And the beauty of Paolo Coelho for me is that he has a way of highlighting the lessons we get in the mundane. So it's not always those message moments that hit. They're like, oh, okay, this is the message. Sometimes it's something very mundane. And in the book, there's a moment where he's just, I think he's waiting in a hotel lobby and he is reading some magazine, some random magazine about bamboo cultivation. And what it says is that when you plant bamboo, most people know that bamboo is a very invasive species. And it's one of those things that, at least in my part of the world, I love bamboo. Like I would love to have it growing in my backyard, but I have been warned that once bamboo is in, it's very hard to get rid of and it takes over and chokes out everything. So you shouldn't grow it. Like it's just dangerous. And I've looked at different ways that you know you where can keep it in like containers. Like there's a way to do it where you can contain it. But bamboo in and of its nature for the first five years when you plant it, doesn't do anything seemingly. Like you look at it and it doesn't seem to be growing. And after about a five-year period, it can shoot up as high as 25 feet. So it looks like it comes out of nowhere. And what is happening in actuality is that in those five years where you're not seeing anything on top, what's happening in the ground is that this very intricate root system is being built, which is why it's so invasive and it's hard to kill because by the time it shoots up, it has really cemented itself in the ground and the root systems are so extensive that You know, you can chop it off here, but it's still going to grow over there. And it takes about five years, like I said, and then it shoots straight up. So in the context of him looking at that, he realizes that to a certain extent what might be happening is that he is finally hit his five year mark as a bamboo shoot. That's what's going on now. And I walked away with that, <laughs> this is the beauty of Coilo, I walked away with that particular excerpt and I had to sit with it because in a lot of ways, you know, Black Panther is her bamboo shoot moment. You know, she spent all of these years doing all of this amazing work, being this amazing costume designer that nobody outside of the industry that knows her was paying attention to. And then it seems like out of nowhere, here she come, but she's been building and creating this extensive network for years. So part of me is wondering, like, am I entering into my bamboo shoot moment? Because something feels different. Like, there's like an electricity, things are building. There's a lot of travel coming up for me. You know, even just trying to figure out what March is gonna look like as we speak. Like I may have to be on a plane, you know, next week uh, somewhere. So something to think about. I'll leave you with that. I don't know that that helps. I just felt compelled to share that story because I felt like it tied very nicely into where we went to today in talking about Ruth Carter. And so, yeah, you know, maybe you might be still building your root system, you know, five years for a bamboo, you know, might be 10 or 15 years of just your head down doing the work. And then all of a sudden you pop. So yeah, we'll leave it at that. I think the big takeaways for this particular Episode. The first one being, I think for me sharing this, my rumination was important. I have to tell you another story soon about an amazing conversation that happened unexpectedly around the table at an open house I co hosted because it was powerful. So it's okay, I think the rumination is important and I think that it's important to get it out. Like what I'm trying to be better at is not live in my head so much. So find people who are your people and talk about these things. I think that's the first thing. Two, take stock. I I remember I applied for an executive director position that I was asked to apply for by like three people they are like, you should apply. And in order to apply, I had to restructure my resume and I hadn't updated it in like two years. So I had to go and assess everything that I had done and got some really great help by you a really good friend who helped me organize everything that I'd done to that point. And I have to tell you, much like when Ruth Carter walks through the museum and she sees all the work that she's done and there's this moment of like, oh my goodness. When I looked at that resume, I was like, oh my God. Like, oh shit, like you're dope. Like I know I'm dope in my head. I'm like, oh yeah, you dope. But when I saw things on paper, I was blown away. Um, I don't think I'd actually... Ever put all of that together in such a way where I could say, this is all that you've done. It's important to assess and take stock. I think sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit and I definitely am guilty of that. And so just take a minute and like look at your life and just see how much you've been able to accomplish. Because I think that is something that, you know, we need to do so that we don't lose sight of the importance of the journey. And I think the third thing is to own the experiences nothing that you have experienced on your path is wasted unless in my opinion this is my humble opinion unless it is a lesson that you refuse to learn i think when you learn that lesson and you have new problems because you've learned that lesson and you've accomplished that challenge there's something powerful about that so nothing is wasted i think it only becomes a waste when you are sort of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. But those takeaways for me in this context feel the most genuine. And if there's more that come up, I'll, I'll do an edit and add to the description. But yeah, those are the three things. I will list a link to the series as well as the Palo Coelho books that I have been inspired by in the description. Um, yeah, and so if you decide to read them, let me know. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate your time and your energy. Shout out to all the folks who have told me that they have been listening. I appreciate you. It means a lot that folks, you know, subscribe, even if it's like, I think, I think we're at like 20 subscribers now, which is very exciting, but yeah, you know, little by little, I'm a bam you know, I'm still building my root system. We'll see. So, um, that's it for this episode. I'm going to go out here and continue to make this culture because it's not going to make itself. And I will I will be back to talk with you very soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. It means a lot to me. Just wanted to let you know that Cat's Corner the podcast is produced by Little Sosa Productions and edited by Aileen Andrada of Your Bud Pod. If you'd like to follow us, you can check me out at Cats Corner Co. K A T S K O R N E R C O on all platforms and lsp underscore on the go. Tune in next time for another edition. As always we appreciate your listen. Don't forget to like and subscribe so that you can be updated as new podcasts come in. Take care.